Well, it's good to be back. It's good to see you all. Denise and I went to Seattle where I preached uh, our uh, younger son's ordination into the Disciples of Christ denomination. And then we had already scheduled a conference in Chicago uh, with uh, Brian McLaren. Some of you have been in our small groups, have studied some of his work. So I am so glad to be back, and it's good that you were in good hands with Chris for the last two weeks. So I appreciate him. And since I'm coming back today, I'm going to bore you with a message about Leviticus. <laughs> Have you ever heard any sermons uh, taken from the book and the Hebrew scripture of Leviticus? And we're looking at some things from Leviticus that might be a trigger warning for, for us. So just uh, please take care of that. And we're going to ask the question, what's up with Leviticus and no bacon? <laughs> Leviticus is kind of weird. There are some rules and laws that just seem to us in our culture just crazy. Failing to include salt in the offerings to God. Evidently, God likes the salt. There is letting your hair become messed up. My hair is always messed up. And that's uh, an abomination to God, according to Leviticus. Eating any animal which walks on all fours and has paws, so our, our dogs are safe and cats, I guess. Eating an animal which does not both chew the cud and has a divided hoof. Another thing that is uh, prohibited is going to church within 33 days of giving birth to a boy or 66 days of giving birth to a girl. I guess the woman becomes more unclean when giving birth to a girl. It's just uh, some things that I don't understand, to be honest with you. Finding lost property and lying about it. Now, that's a pretty good law. We can get behind that. Mistreating foreigners. How about that? I can get behind that. I like this one, too. Using dishonest weights and scales. So a lot of times we look at Leviticus and think there's just nothing in there worth uh, us considering. But some things really are. And some things in Leviticus do express the values of, of the Christ that we all uh, embrace. But what I want us to do today is to understand that as we slog through the muck of what we think is the book of Leviticus... There is this very precious jewel in all of that mud. I will put my dwelling place among you, the people hear God say, and I will not abhor, abhor you. I've got a problem with that. I don't think God ever abhors us. But their mentality was that there are some things and some people that God abhors. And uh, this was an expression of these people's minds of their understanding of God who says, I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. That is so powerful in the culture in which the people of uh, Israel lived in the land of Canaan. It was a polytheistic land, many gods. The people had all kinds of gods in this land. And one characteristic that united all of these different gods is that None of these gods wanted to be close to the people who worshipped them. And these gods did not want the people to be close to them. And so the gods in these days 
were distant, aloof. They were just too cool for school and wanted nothing to do with humanity. But underneath all of these interesting, weird rules in the book of Leviticus, there is an understanding of of the Israeli people that their God, Yahweh, that they were trying to follow and trying to understand was different than the rest of these gods. That Yahweh was a God who really did want to hang with humans. God really did want to be close to humanity. And for some reason, I don't understand it, but for some reason the people thought that following these rules would accomplish this getting close to God. But my understanding is that woven throughout Scripture, you get Hebrews 13.5. That's in the Christian uh, Scripture. Uh, Lord says to the writer, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, you know, the context is we don't need a whole bunch of stuff because we've got the Lord. And God makes his promise I I will never abhor you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, no matter who you are or what you have done. But today in our series, Let's Eat, I want us to look at some of these food laws in Leviticus. Some of these dietary laws that uh, are so weird, and there's so many of them, that I want to limit our, our time today to talking about those parts of Leviticus that have to do with the really nice subject of slaughtering animals for sacrifice and for food. Leviticus 17 and then Deuteronomy chapter 12 speak generally to the practice of slaughtering animals. The specifics of that process are spelled out in a, a series of writings called the Talmud. That is a series of writings and discussion of of Hebrew uh, rabbis uh, that were written over the period of time from 70 BCE all the way to 500 CE, where they just have these theological discussions about what in the world does the Hebrew scriptures mean when it talks about this kind of thing. One of my favorite writers is a Jewish Bible scholar named Jacob Milgram. And that's a picture of him there. And he wrote a really interesting commentary, if there is such a thing, this is, on the book of Leviticus. And uh, he writes about this process of slaughtering animals that I was so moved by. And I want to share that with you and kind of unpack that a little bit today. What he says about the slaughtering of animals by the Hebrew people back in these ancient days is this. All of these clearly demonstrate the perfection of a slaughtering technique, and here's the key for me, whose purpose is to render the animal immediately unconscious without a minimum, with, a, with a minimum of suffering. With a minimum of suffering. You know, this is three, 4,000 years ago. Well, good night, nurse. Five, 6,000 years ago. He goes on and says, and in keeping with the originally sacral nature of the rite of slaughtering. So slaughtering an animal is to be done with a sense of holiness. It's a sacred thing to do. So they insist, the priests do, that he who would perform the slaughtering, though not a priest, 
shall act like a priest. He shall recite an appropriate blessing for this animal, thus dedicating his slaughter to God. Moreover, by virtue of his training in piety, his soul shall never be torpified. I don't know what that even means. Torpedo? No. Torpified is the idea, I had to look it up, of, uh, of being, uh, oh gosh, alarmed, uh, shocked, uh, maybe even calloused in his incessant butchery, but kept ever sensitive to the magnitude of the divine concession in allowing him to bring death to living things. So the Hebrew scripture limited the animals that could be eaten to just eat. And then it stipulates how those animals were to be killed. They were not to be killed just by anyone. And those who were able to kill these animals, they were to be skilled. And the measurement for their skill was, are you able to do this? Are you able to slaughter this animal without causing pain to the animal? If you're not, then this is not the job for you. You have to be skilled in slaughtering the animal so it does not experience pain or just the minimum possible amount of pain. And then these, the slaughterers had to see this act as a sacred one. So skill in using uh, the technique that would bring hardly any pain and then the slaughterers had to have a piety about them that saw this role as a spiritual role, the spiritual nature of the act. So the message of the Leviticus laws is to respect life by three things. They reduce their choice of flesh to a few animals. They limit the slaughter of even those few permitted animals to be the most humane way. And then third, I didn't really talk about much. They prohibit the consumption of the blood as the acknowledgement that bringing death to living things is a concession from God and not a privilege of humanity's whim. That the fact that in the story of the Hebrew scripture, how the Hebrew people understood uh, theology and humanity and uh, their worldview, that to eat meat was not a privilege of man, it was concession of God. If you go back to the original parable of Genesis, found in Genesis, of the first humans, and I call that a parable, and you may disagree with me on that. You may see the story of Genesis as a, a factual, historical thing. I don't. And it's cool if you do, and it's cool if I don't, I hope. It's cool with you, but I don't see it as a factual, historical thing. There's just too many things about it that just don't line up with how we would see history today. The talking snake and Adam trying to find a mate in a parade of animals. That's just a beautiful, fun story, but it's just very fable-like. And I think we get more truth out of it if we can just accept it as a parable. So in this parable of the first humans, we ask ourselves, well, what did the first humans eat, according to this story? Well, God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it, take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. And then God said, 
I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. This will be your food. So the story, the parable of the first humans, these humans were vegetarians or vegan. Meat did not come around until after the flood. And Noah and his sons, I guess, were thirsty, hungry for blood. They wanted some meat. And I don't think Genesis 9, uh, 6 through 9, which tells the story of the flood, is a literal, factual, historical thing either. I think it's another parable. Was there a flood? Probably was a flood in, in, those, in that area. I don't think it was a worldwide flood. And if you want to leave now, I understand. <laughs> I hope you stay, but if you need to, if that really bothers you, that's okay as well. But I get more out of these stories if I just see the uh, not, not having to make it a factual historical thing, but some lessons from it. Well, after the flood and the genocide, that's what it was, of the human race, there was just Noah and his family left, according to this story. And they wanted some meat. And uh, they were very much, I guess, like Ron Swanson. You've accidentally given me food that my food eats. And Noah and the sons, according to this story, did not want uh, plants. They wanted some meat. And so God says, all right, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So the eating of the meat, as you look at the story of Genesis, was a concession of God to man. It was not God's original plan. Now, you can do with that whatever you want. You know, you might be saying now, well, I really don't believe that's a true story. There's nothing true about that. Uh, so just take it as you will, but there's a principle there somewhere that I think we could uh, grab onto. But then God even gives a stipulation to the eating of meat. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, you cannot eat the blood of the meat because there was in this Hebrew philosophy worldview, life was in, uh, in the blood. And when some of us think about, about our food, whether it be vegetables or whether it be meat, I go back, maybe you do too, to uh, the books of my childhood, like Old MacDonald's Farm, and all the animals are happy, and they're all singing, and they're laughing, and they're playing with each other, and it's just a very, very serene, pleasant experience. And you know, on Old MacDonald's Farm, you can picture a chicken, and her downy white feathers, and her small, intense eyes, and maybe the little chicken is sitting on a nest, just uh, uh, softly clucking, or maybe the chicken is scratching in the dirt, and in the background is this beautiful red barn, and on the side is a cow grazing, and over here is a, is a pig rooting in the mud. It's just a very serene picture. But the thing about that is, it's pretty much all fiction, isn't it? Today, 75% of our meat comes from what is called factory farms. Historians tell us that researchers started talking about factory farms in the middle of the 20th century, and a factory farm is just what it sounds like. It's to where the farm is run like a factory, with the goal being to be the most efficient, the most productive, and the most profitable farm possible. 
go back in history a little bit to the Nixon administration, and Nixon's Secretary of Agricultural uh, had a very famous line for the farmers back in those days, and he urged farmers to get big or get out. And so there was this movement from government laws to create factory farms. They thought it would be more efficient and productive. So imagine that chicken on old McDonald's farm. Well, now then, imagine that chicken living in a space that is no bigger than my iPad right here. That is the size of a space that is lived in by a factory farmed chicken. The idea behind that is efficiency, productivity, certainly not treating animals in a humane way. 1920, the average chicken was slaughtered at 112 days old, and the chicken weighed an average of two pounds. Fast forward a century, 100 years, and the average chicken today is slaughtered at 47 days, and that chicken average weight is six pounds. Very efficient. You get more meat off that, but it's not too good for the chicken. The chicken grows so fat, so fast, that their legs cannot hold them up. And that's what we eat mostly. Chicken. Factory farm. I'm a hog fan. I love the, I love the pigs, even when they're playing bad. I'm, I'm proud of the Tigers yesterday uh, playing against Florida. But uh, let's go from the Razorback Stadium to just the farm and to a factory farm. And you've got that cute little baby piglet. And uh, within just a few hours or a day or two of being born, they will castrate that baby piglet without any anesthetic. So trigger warning. They cut the scrotum open without any anesthetic and with this tool, they'll just pull the testicles out. Old McDonald's farm. I compare that with what I read in the book of Leviticus and what we read from the Talmud as these rabbis discuss this process. And I am so very thankful for the humanity that is expressed in the slaughtering of animals in ancient days. And I'm ashamed and I'm bothered and I'm horrified that as we have evolved as a species, as humans, we have devolved when it comes to the treatment of our animals. Just watch a few documentaries and your taste buds will change, your heart will change, and maybe your stomach will change. Yeah. So you remember, I hope, as I just touched on, how the rabbis spoke of the skill of the slaughterers and the sacredness of the act of animal processing. And as the priest and another person who wasn't a priest was slaughtered the animals, but the other person had to approach the animal as if they were a priest, with gratitude for the animal, with humanity toward the animal. 
and they saw it as a sacred thing, and they took care and time in the, in the doing of it. Well, people in the meat processing world today just don't see it that way. One guy says, I worked in the slaughterhouse for six months. It was the most horrible experience of my life. The animals were treated like objects, not living beings. They were crammed into small spaces. They were beaten and abused, and they were killed in a very inhumane way. I saw animals that were still alive being dragged into the slaughter room. I saw animals that were being skinned alive. I saw animals that were being cut up while they were still conscious. It was traumatizing. I couldn't take it anymore, so I quit. I will never forget the things that I saw and heard in that slaughterhouse. It haunts me to this day. The rabbis wrote that the process that the ancient Jewish people used in slaughtering these animals was designed so that the slaughterer would not grow numb to the act. That it just wouldn't be another thing. I'm just so used to killing animals, it just doesn't touch me anymore. But it was done in such a way that the slaughterer felt something for the animal. A sense of appreciation and, and gratitude. A oneness with that. And it was designed so that there would not be a calloused heart who was doing the hands that we were doing the slaughtering. But it would be a soft heart. And it's so different than what slaughterhouse employees are experiencing. Working in a slaughterhouse may be morally repugnant and unethical to some people, but it was something we had to do to survive. We had to desensitize ourselves because we had to feed our kids and pay rent. What other choice did we have? Our moral compass and ethical principles eventually changed to suit our environment, and we were forced to become numb to the brutality of what we had to do to live because there were no other options. Wow, the wisdom of the book of Leviticus is seen in this person's testimony. This person hated having to do this, but there was no other job that they could find. And he admits we became numb to it. We abandoned our ethics and our moral, we lost our moral compass. But there were no other options. The Hebrew way of eating and processing food reminds me of the native American way. Many Native American tribes believe that the Great Spirit had created a harmonious world of plenty, and the Native Americans saw them just as one part of that bigger picture, that bigger world. And all of nature can, can, can contain this divine spirit. And so all of life was to be respected. And so the Native Americans managed the land in a way that would benefit all living creatures. And so when they would cut down a tree for wood, they would thank the tree. When they would kill an animal, they would thank the animal for providing, for giving its flesh for them to eat and for giving them the skin for their clothes. 
The European Christian view, which we inherited mostly as Protestants or even as Catholics, just all of the American Christianity, we inherit a European Christian view, worldview of life, of animals, of eating, of how to live. And that European Christian view was a view based upon a particular interpretation of the story in Genesis to where humans were given the right to enslave creation, to dominate creation. The word subdue that we read was translated to mean enslave and treat it with brutality instead of with care and with concern. I got to be honest with you. If, uh, if I didn't have my evangelical background and, and I just really had a good time in church as a kid, I am so thankful for my home and being involved in church. But if I were a new guy, never having been involved in church and in, a, in Christianity as a kid, uh, I, I begin to have some questions as an adult about Christianity, but not so much as a kid. But if I was an adult just coming in and being introduced to Christianity as a way to subdue the earth and control the earth and to dominate the earth and to enslave the earth, I probably wouldn't be a Christian. I'd rather practice the religion of the Native Americans than to practice Christianity, if that's what Christianity is. But I don't think it is. I, I think there's a way to express and to experience and live Christianity in a way that honors all of creation. That the Christ spirit is in everything. And that's the kind of Christianity that I'm wanting to lead you into and other people. And this means a lot to Denise and me personally as our, our eating has changed. I'll talk more about this a little bit after I stuff myself on Thanksgiving. <laughs> but just to do the health and my health issues, we've had to change our eating. And I'm glad we have and because maybe if I hadn't changed my eating due to health, I wouldn't have looked at eating in a more spiritual way. But let me ask you this for you to consider. What would change about your eating if we followed the, the principles of Leviticus that I've just skimmed over today? What would change about your eating if we saw animals the way God sees them. For every wild animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I know all the birds of the air. And all that moves in the field is mine. I love the poetry of that. And, and, and the message that it communicates to me is that God cares for every one of these creatures. And that means that I need to personally approach my food, whether it's meat, in a very humane, caring way. I love what the proverb says, good people take care of their animals, but wicked people are cruel to theirs. 
Why don't they put that at the doorway of every slaughterhouse? And, you know, I just lost myself. Why don't they put that at the doorway of every slaughterhouse in the United States? One of my favorite movies is a children's movie, 1995, Babe, the talking pig, the shepherd pig. So I want to show you a scene that uh, introduces uh, the idea to us that uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving, at the time, we start looking at our pig to slaughter. And that's what's happening on the farm here where Babe uh, resides. Take a look at this scene from Babe. Well, Babe has no idea how he's going to be celebrating Christmas. And spoiler alert, they end up not slaughtering Babe for Christmas dinner. And I, I was glad of that. I'm not really interested, you know, in seeing the face of the animal that I'm going to eat. It kind of makes it too personable. Maybe I ought to consider the face of the animal that I eat. I need to be maybe more grateful to that animal. You know, following a spirituality of eating as outlined by Leviticus doesn't mean that you become a vegan or a vegetarian even. But maybe it does mean that I'm going to start eating in a way that honors the animal better. Maybe I'll start eating a way that doesn't support animals that are raised on factory farms and processed in slaughterhouses. I realize that eating organic meat is really expensive. Organic cows, cows that do yoga, are just really, they just cost a lot. And uh, what Denise and I do, we don't eat a lot of beef. We eat some bison and we eat some fish. But when we do eat meat, we, eat it, we buy organic. And we make sure that we're, the meat that we're buying is from a source that does process in the most humane way possible. Well, Philip, I can't afford that, and I, I get that. But here's what Denise and I decided to do. What if... When we do eat meat, let's limit it to once or twice a week. And the meat that we eat is organic and it is humanely sourced. Instead of eating factory farm meat every day. And Denise and I discovered that if we just eat once meat once a week, but it's organic and it's humanely sourced, yes, it's expensive, but it's not expensive. It's not as expensive as eating factory farm meat every day. We limit it, less quantity, but much higher quality. I think for us personally, it's better for the animal, and I think it's better for the planet as well. Paul says something really interesting in to the Corinthians. So whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. How do we eat to the glory of God? On a personal level, it means that I change what I eat and how I eat and my process. On a systemic level, it means that maybe we reform our systems in the United States agricultural world to one that is based 
on compassion and care for the animals as well as for people. All right, food for thought. Yeah. So uh, this Thanksgiving, I don't know what y'all are going to have. It'll probably just be Denise and me, so we won't have a big turkey. But that turkey that you're probably going to eat, 99.9% of turkeys in the United States to be eaten were raised on a factory farm. And maybe there's time to go to a health market here in town and get one that's from a local farm. That might be good. Might be more expensive. But uh, just don't eat so much and eat, eat, eat a little bit better. <laughs>